Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, a journey into the world of KTEL, the Winnipeg-based company that all but revolutionized the retail landscape for decades, beginning in the 60s with gizmos and gadgets, compilation albums crammed with cuts. Samantha Kivas, daughter of company founder Philip Kivas, who still helps run the company today, gives us a tour. Australia will be moving images of the monarch off its money in the near future. King Charles will not replace his late mother on the country's $5 bill. Why? Why now? And should Canada look at doing the same? But first, the global consulting firm McKinsey & Company with a huge increase in business it's been seeing under the current federal government is under the microscope these days. Mike Forsyth of the New York Times and author of the bestseller, When McKinsey Comes to Town, the hidden influence of the world's most powerful consulting firm walks us through why we should be concerned. First up today, I've been really interested in this whole story around the federal government hiring consultants, and in particular, that huge jump in the number of contracts given to one major firm, McKinsey & Company. The whole issue raised its head last month when it was reported that McKinsey had obtained more than $100 million in consulting contracts with federal departments since the Liberals came to power in 2015. To put that in perspective, it's nearly 50 times more than they had received under the Harper government from 2006 to 2015. Well, why would that be? Well, a lot of fingers are pointing at Dominic Barton. He's McKinsey's former global managing director who went on to become Canada's ambassador in Beijing, appointed by Prime Minister Trudeau. He had previously served as the chair of an advisory council on economic growth for former finance minister Bill Morneau. So the ties were there. Now, Trudeau has asked uh, members of his cabinet to look into this, but the House of Commons Government Operations Committee is doing some digging of its own. And yesterday, Barton appeared in front of them, telling MPs he had no involvement in federal contracts awarded to the firm in recent years. I want to make three quick observations that I hope will be helpful. First, I want to be clear that I had no involvement whatsoever in any awarding of paid work to McKinsey by the federal government since I relocated to Asia in 1996. Barton also pushed back on questions or accusations that he is close friends with the Prime Minister. Would you consider yourself a friend of the Prime Minister, the current Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau? I have, I, no, I, I consider myself having, no, I, I'm not a friend. I have a professional relationship. When did you I, first excuse meet Excuse me, the... can I finish, Mr. Chair? Sure, I, so briefly. I, I respect him. I think yep. he respects me. I don't have his personal phone number, okay. and I haven't been in a room alone with him. So that was the tone of those exchanges yesterday. It's already been pointed out that the big issue here is the public service increasingly relying on consulting firms in general. And all the questions that raises about who exactly is in charge of public policy in this country, not to mention all the money that's spent on it. But I wanted to know more about McKinsey and how the company operates because Ottawa is by no means its only major government client. A new book called When McKinsey Comes to Town, The Hidden Influence of the World's Most Powerful Consulting Firm, seemed like a great place to start to look for some answers. It's co-written by Mike Forsyth, who is an investigative uh, reporter at the New York Times. So I reached out to him early this morning to see on the off chance he'd be willing to give me his perspective on this. And because it's such a hot topic, he agreed. Mike Forsyth joins me now. Thanks so much. Oh, my pleasure. This has been a real, I mean, this has become a real hot topic in Canada after, you know, we really didn't pay a lot of attention to uh, to the firm over the years. Does it come as a surprise to you what you've learned so far just about the uh, the kind of government contracts that McKinsey was getting and the fact that there's such a spotlight on it now? 
No, it doesn't come as a surprise at all because uh, this has been going on in other countries, uh, including the United States, the UK, Germany, France, um, you know, McKinsey and other consulting companies, in all fairness, have really increased their presence in government ministries around the world as ministries start to outsource work uh, to the consulting companies. How does it work? What is the is there a game plan about how this how this unfolds? Is it lobbying? Is it friends in high places? I mean, without without not in the illegal sense, but how is it, how, how what is the McKinsey game book when it comes to uh, to getting this kind of work? So it's not something that McKinsey's been doing for the entire life of the firm. They started in 1926. It was really around the turn of the century that they really started a big push into public sector work. They have connections around the world. Uh, they know a lot of people. They are in high places. And maybe that's what distinguishes them a little bit from their competitors is just, you know, the prestige of some of their top people. You know, Dominic Barton, you know, was a Rhodes Scholar. The current managing partner of McKinsey is a Rhodes Scholar. There, you know, are senators in the United States, you know, who were McKinsey partners. The, You know, they're, they're everywhere. Uh, there were government ministers in, in Britain. Uh, the foreign uh, secretary for a long time there was a, a McKinsey person. So they're they're definitely ensconced in a lot of ministries, banks around the world. And so those connections certainly are helpful. What did you find about the impact of the kind of work that they're doing within what is essentially the public service? Yeah. So this is really interesting. They have attracted a lot of attention um, in other countries before uh, the spotlight turned to Canada. And boy, is the spotlight on Canada now. You know, one thing that we found very interesting in the United States was possible or perceived conflict of interest between their work for private companies uh, and their work for the government. Basically, they're advising the regulators and the regulated. And this is certainly true in the pharmaceutical industry. And in particular, what's attracted a lot of attention in the United States is the fact that McKinsey was working for some of the makers of uh, prescription opioids like Purdue Pharma, and at the same time, working for uh, the specific divisions in the FDA that oversee that industry. Same for tobacco. McKinsey advised the big tobacco companies in the world until just 2021. And at the same time they were doing that, they were advising the uh, Food and Drug Administration's Office of Tobacco Products. So that's definitely, you know, attracted a lot of attention in the United States. And it's certainly not uh, only in the United States. Other countries uh, have focused on this, too. Yeah, I noticed, of course, in France, uh, the president there, Emmanuel Macron, has quite the ties to McKinsey as well. I mean, it seems to be, you know, often countries tend to focus in on themselves when it comes to these issues. But when it comes to the idea of consultants and McKinsey specifically, uh, as you mentioned, this really is a, a global issue. The, the idea of the of the turbocharging of opioid sales keeps coming up. It was, certainly came up yesterday in committee when Dominic Barton was asked about it. He, of course, said that uh, there was nothing nothing illegal about it, uh, that, that they had been that there were mistakes made, I believe, was his term. Um, what do you make of that? I mean, he was at the top when this was going on, I believe. He was at the top. So Dominic Barton was the managing partner for all of McKinsey from 2009 to 2018. Uh, the turbocharging comments that came out in uh, slide presentations, which is kind of the coin of the realm there for, for McKinsey, was in 2013, 2014. And it was a push 
by McKinsey to help Purdue Pharma target doctors who are prescribing a lot of OxyContin maybe to, to boost sales. There was a whole strategy to get a sales boost for OxyContin at Purdue. So this was right in the middle of Barton's term. Now, in defense of him, you know, being the managing partner of McKinsey is not the same as being the CEO of a company. Uh, right. You really are kind of the first among equals. Uh, it's a very decentralized company kind of modeled along a law firm. So it's not like he's barking orders all the time. But still, the idea that, you know, he may not have known much about this or anything about this work um, is, is, is eyebrow raising because some of these partners working on McKinsey were very senior people. Uh, one of them was the number one political donor in the entire firm of more than 30,000 people, for example, this guy named Martin Elling. And, and the idea that it didn't break any laws I guess technically that's true. Um, McKinsey did settle um, in early 2021 with a, a, with some states, attorneys generals in the United States for about $600 million, a little more than $600 million. And in that settlement, they admitted no wrongdoing. When you're paying $600 million, you know, that does raise the question, was there any wrongdoing? If, there, if you really didn't do anything wrong, why the heck are you paying $600 million? In McKinsey's case, uh, how out of the ordinary is that for a consulting firm to do that kind of work? Because my experience with consulting firms is essentially they're hired to do something, right? So they come in and they're um, agnostic was the term I was going to use, but maybe amoral would be the better one. I would go with amoral. Certainly other consulting firms have also done work uh, that is a bit eyebrow raising, you know, but the the work with Purdue, that was McKinsey. And that went on for uh, from 2002 to about 2018. Uh, McKinsey took in more than $80 million from Purdue Pharma. And, uh, you know, certainly other top management consulting companies do work uh, with uh, controversial clients. Boston Consulting Group, for example, working with uh, some of these uh, corrupt leaders in Angola, uh, working with the Saudi government along with McKinsey as well. So it's not confined to McKinsey, but McKinsey is the top dog. They're the alpha dog in the industry, right? With a star-studded cast of just you know brilliant consultants. So uh, for that kind of brain power to be focused on a client who's not a good actor is kind of scary when, when you get some of the best brains in the world working to increase OxyContin sales, for example. Mike Forsyth is on the investigations team at the New York Times. He's co-author of When McKinsey Comes to Town. He speaks to us to, from New York uh, tonight. Mike, when you look at what's happening in Canada now, and you, you're obviously able to put this in a much broader perspective, I mean, a lot of the concern has been about the huge increase in contracts that McKinsey has seen under the current government and the ties, you know, because Dominic Barton became ambassador to China under this government, those sort of the idea of those ties. How should we make sense of all of this? Because it can be kind of, you know, there's obviously a political aspect to this where it becomes very partisan, but what's a sober view of what's going on here? Yeah. You know, so I think it is, you know, you have to be fair in the sense that McKinsey is by no means the biggest consultant uh, to the Canadian government. And, you know, some of the, you know, the Deloitte's, the PwC's, the Accenture's of the world, um, they take in more money from Ottawa. That's pretty clear. You know, what's interesting, though, is, you know, McKinsey is, again, it's at the top of the pyramid. The, some of the work they do is very high level. For example, you know, they were working, you know, it's not just with the federal government, but with the provincial governments as well, uh, working with the Newfoundland government, for example, on, you know, designing, you know, an economic 
policy? You know, how how do you make the province grow? How you know what are the best policies? You know, to go going forward, how do you develop the economy? And then the the Newfoundland government actually acts on some of these, and that's really powerful stuff. It's not just you know installing circuits, digitizing you know some ministry in Ottawa, and so it's a it's a powerful company and. When they get in to an agency or a company, they tend to stay kind of like the the dinner guests, you know, the bad dinner guests who just never leave. You know, that is actually one of their strategies that they tell their new recruits too. when you get in, you need to spread like an amoeba. And that's not me talking. That's actually a, a McKinsey orientation manual. And so, uh, you know, what starts as a small project, maybe uh, for one ministry could expand as McKinsey goes in, starts looking around and saying, hey, you know, we're working on this project, but we noticed a problem over here and we noticed a problem over there. And soon, you know, the work balloons. Uh, this has happened in the United States, you know, and certainly I think people in Canada need to be uh, on the lookout for this, for mission creep on the part of these consultants. It's obviously a successful business strategy. I mean, you know, we know that, uh, I mean, even Dominic Barton mentioned yesterday that he felt that part of the problem was that, um, you know, the human resource systems in bureaucracy are weak and need to be revamped, right? And, you know, he was sort of preaching for better training of public servants. But you, as you point out, McKinsey actually has a business plan here that involves going in and filling the vacuum where it exists. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, certainly, you know, sometimes a government ministry or a private company needs that outside set of eyes. And and certainly McKinsey um, brings, you know, a lot of brain power uh, to, to the table. The question is, are you bringing in somebody totally objective or are you also bringing in somebody that has other interests in mind, whether those are perceived conflicts of interest or real conflicts of interest? Certainly, we've seen that in the United States. When you're going in to government ministries whose responsibility is to regulate and oversee society and, you know, the company that is advising you is also overseeing private companies from telecoms to coal mining companies in the case of tech resources. That's a, that's something you need to be aware of as, as a taxpayer and as a legislator and a citizen. That was an interesting, and this is sort of outside the realm of McKinsey a little bit, but uh, when Dominic Barton left uh, McKinsey before he went to Beijing, he was uh, with Tech, which is obviously a huge company here that's involved in all sorts of resource extraction. And you saw even there that their McKinsey contracts went way up when he came in. Yeah, he went there in mid 2018 or after, you know, after he left McKinsey in mid 2018. And, uh, you know, our records that we were able to get uh, from um, McKinsey showed that uh, in 2019, you know, after he was already there and before he went to China, you know, McKinsey got a lot of business from tech where there really wasn't much of anything before. So, you know, where Barton went McKinsey followed. Now, you you can't extrapolate, I don't think, that to work in Ottawa, but it, it certainly is interesting. I also look at it from, a, you know, just somebody who cares about the climate and the environment. Uh, McKinsey's always talking a big game about how they're committed to uh, saving the planet, to reducing carbon output. And, you know, the ink's barely dry on uh, Barton's departure from McKinsey. And here he is uh, going to work for a company that literally blasts mountains in the Canadian Rockies to smithereens looking for coal to burn in steel mills. We know there's a lot of politics going on with all this, as is always the case. But is this a necessary wake up call for Canadians, not just about McKinsey, but about McKinsey, but also about just you know, the whole notion of consultants in government, period? 
I think it is. These guys cost a lot of money. Um, you know, I've seen those charts and it's uh, not just McKinsey, but, you know, they're spending hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in Ottawa. And you know, don't forget the provinces either. You know, they're, they're, they're there as well. This is taxpayer money and the taxpayers need to know if they're getting something in, in return for, for their uh, hard-earned money. The book is called When McKinsey Comes to Down. Mike Forsyth is the co-author. He's also on the investigations team at the New York Times. Uh, thank you so much for your insight on this. Oh, my pleasure. Introducing the Bedazzler, the machine that gives your wardrobe a new flair. Transform your ordinary tops and t-shirts into a new fabulous look with rhinestones and studs. An ordinary belt becomes exciting and new with a totally different look. Make your purse fashionable and unique with your very own design. Imagine transform your ordinary blue jeans into an expensive designer look. Be the envy of your friends. Be creative. Bedazzle your socks, mitts and gloves, hats and scarves. Even runners, the choices are endless. Kids and adults, now you can give your clothes the bedazzle look for a fraction of what it would cost to buy in stores. Bedazzler machine complete with 150 studs, four interchangeable heads, pattern and instruction book. Everything for $19.99 from K5. Money back if not delighted. Available at Zellers. Makes an ideal gift. Those KTEL ads from back in the day, the Bedazzler, of course, was one of the many, many, many that you saw. And what's amazing about listening to KTEL ads now is you it's hard to imagine a time before them because they became kind of the template for those infomercials, right? That's what every other infomercial sounded like after, whether it was the, the Ginsu knives, you name it. They sounded exactly like a KTEL ad. And that was uh, something that was basically revolutionized uh, by Philip Kivas. He was you know, born in Saskatchewan, um, raised in very modest surroundings, became a salesman, went to Winnipeg, honed his craft, started KTEL, and the rest is Canadian history and global history for that matter. Um, I think about all the products. We were talking about them on the show last night. You were nice enough to send in some of the ones that uh, that you liked, like the Patty Stacker, someone, uh, but the Fishing Magician, <laughs> all of them, uh, the, the Super Slider Snow Skates, Bigfoot, uh, the Hair Magician, then of course all the Omatics, you know, the Vegematic, Mincematic, all of them. I mean, I remember the commercials when they were on, but these were a huge deal, uh, these products at the time. And then of course, for kids like me, it was really all about uh, the music. Original music power, the KTEL Music Machine with Manfred Vance. Original stars, Andy Gear. KC and the Sunshine Band. Foreigner, Kiss, Rolls Royce, Silvers, Marvin Gaye, and Apple. The music makes it play. Peter McCann. Powered by all top ten hits, it's KTEL's Music Machine. Available at all these fine stores. Wow, that takes you back, doesn't it? Uh, I think that one was from 1977. Someone was asking about that one last night. It has the picture of the robot on the cover. I mean, KTEL was very much the Spotify of its time. Uh, given all those tracks they used to cram onto those records, it allowed music fans, especially younger ones, to not spend a lot of money and find out, you know, hear a lot of good tracks and find out ones about ones they didn't know about. And all those commercials, or at least were written, and most of them were written, at the family's kitchen table. And um, Philip would use his kids, including his daughter, Samantha, who's about to join us, uh, in a lot of those commercials as well. It had such a big impact, not only on consumer culture, on the on retail, but also on advertising. So it's hard to kind of overstate just how influential KTEL really was. So to take us through a journey back in time, and KTEL is still around today, by the way, Samantha Kivas joins us now from Toronto. Thanks for your time tonight. 
Oh, thank you so much for having me. Well, it's remarkable. Here we are. It's 2023, and we're talking about KTEL, and it's uh, it's remarkable that it's still here and still with us and still doing well. Uh, tell me a bit about where it all started because it it had humble beginnings, just like just like your dad. <laughs> it did. It had very humble beginnings. I mean, how far back do you want me to go? My my dad grew up in a one-room farmhouse in Saskatchewan, and then it turned into this massive, the largest independent record label in the world at one point. So it really is, you know, a rags to riches story. In 1962, actually, was the first year that they, he's credited with creating the live infomercial. Um, he sold Teflon-coated frying pans. And they sold tons of them. Unfortunately, the frying pans, um, the Teflon actually came off with the egg. So they got all the Teflon returned to them, all the pans. However, what he realized was the power of TV and how it really worked. Yeah, I guess with every with every success comes a whole series of of setbacks, right? That's how it always seems to work for those who manage to uh, achieve big things in business or in entrepreneurship. Exactly. Tell me a bit about, I mean, I was reading that your dad actually... um, used to worked on the, on the boardwalk in Atlantic city beside Ed McMahon at one point. Absolutely. So I'd love to tell that story. So as I mentioned, he grew up in a one room farmhouse in Saskatchewan. You know, he didn't want to be a farmer all his life. So, you know, he did odd jobs. He like drove taxis. He was a short order cook. And then he became a door to door salesman. And it was something he really excelled at. So then he wanted to get a bigger audience, which is how he ended up at the Atlantic city boardwalk. And he was pitching product right beside Ed McMahon. And then he was still looking for even a bigger audience after that. So he came back to Canada. And as I mentioned, he tried his pitch for the first time on live TV. And that was what people, many people consider is the the first live infomercial. And that's where we had that great story about the Teflon coming off the pans, but the pans sold so many. He saw the power of TV and how his pitching style from the boardwalk, he could bring to a much bigger audience. So this all began because I think oftentimes, like in my case, I always think of KTEL and music, right? But it started yes. off really with 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 products, with kitchen products. Absolutely. So it did. It started off with kitchen products, as I mentioned in 1962. And I think in 65, my father, he went to Australia. He was, this is a funny story. He went to Australia and he was selling miracle brushes. He sold, it was the first time he sold a million units of a product. And he actually used the hotel staff at the hotel he was staying as his order desk. So, you know, he was just very innovative and very resourceful. So then he was getting all of his products from this gentleman named Seymour Popiel out in Chicago. And then, you know, Seymour felt that he was getting too big. So he stopped providing my father with products. And then my product, looking for another product, he tried a record. So in 1966, he did his very first record. It was a 25 country hits with a Bobby Darren giveaway. Um, and I think it did okay. And then his next album was a Pokal album, if you can believe it. And it's really? like a million and a half copies. And that is when KTEL officially became in the music business. It's such a remarkable, I mean, to think about how it evolved, his ability just to sort of recognize opportunity and then innovate. Um, tell me a bit about growing up in that environment, because I understand that uh, that you, the, the kids were often, it was a family affair. <laughs> You know what? It really was a family affair. And I didn't realize that my childhood was that much different than other kids' childhoods. Parents bring their work home. So for us, it was just normal that we would sit around the kitchen table working on commercial scripts. You know, it was just normal for us to get recruited into the commercials or commercials being shot in our kitchen. My father's real love was really like the gadgets and the products. So that was really what I grew up with, you know, over that time. 
tell me about the gadgets themselves because there were so many and i guess i guess you always i always wondered where did they come from like how did he spot something like you know the patty maker or the fishing magician or the vegematic like where did those come from and did they end up in your kitchen yes so you know it's the funniest thing that you say that because like i would always think that myself that my father had this amazing knack of seeing an item and just knowing what people needed. And I don't know if it's because he came from such humble beginnings and he himself, you know, used to work and to do so much around the house, but he just had this knack of like going to the Chicago houseware show or seeing another product and being like, you know what, I can make that product better and less expensive for the average consumer. Like, I don't know. He had this like sixth sense about him. When you were growing up, I mean, tell me the ones that really stick out to me, of course, having grown up in the 70s were all the kids ones like the Bigfoot yeah. or those sliders you could put on your, your boots. I don't know if you could make those today. Um, no. Did, I mean, did he test run them on, on the kids? I don't like we would bring some home. I remember we had this like bouncing ball like this. I think what they called it the kangaroo ball or something that I loved as a kid. But I remember the ones that like really did well are the ones that were more along the lines for like the power drivers, like the, you know, these crazy sort of screwdrivers that were really actually unbelievable or, you know, knives, um, you know, most people remember the patty stacker, which was like a hamburger yes. stacking machine or the Vegematic, which, you know, still classic today. And like, I still get emails today about people looking for instruction manuals for the KTEL knitter and the KTEL really? ice cream machine. I swear really? to God, we still get requests for the instruction manuals for those items. That is, do you have them? We do. We have the instruction manual. So if anybody needs instruction manuals, please let us know. And like, we still send them out. That is uh, for your LP stacker. And that would be yes, your... <laughs> yes. That's KTEL record stacker. That is that is fantastic. Does your tape collection look like this? Then you need a KTEL tape selector. With special attachments, it fits conveniently in your car. Stores all your tapes neatly, ready for easy selection. Tilt the first tape forward. The others follow automatically. Take your selection when it appears. When replacing tapes, Tape Selector automatically finds the proper place. In your home or in your car, protect your valuable tapes with Tape Selector. $4.99 from KTEL. Samantha Kivas uh, from KTEL is with us this half hour. She is daughter of Philip Kivas, the company's founder. The family still owns the business. Tell me a bit about the Winnipeg connection, because I think it it really what became something... Um, KTEL became very much a, a, a Canadian thing. And part of that was because it always stayed in Winnipeg. Yeah, no, it's true. So, I mean, KTEL started its roots in Winnipeg. And yes, they had offices in, you know, London, Australia, the U.S. We, I mean, we still have offices in London and the U.S., but it really is a Winnipeg story. Yeah, well, a, a listener texted in last night to say that he grew up not too far away from the headquarters and used to bike past it. And what a big deal it was because he would see these KTEL commercials on TV. And it felt like, you know, it felt like there was it was like having Amazon down the street nowadays, you know? Yes. No, it's true. It's true. I mean, it's true. KTEL really had such an impactful imprint you know, throughout the world. And this all stemmed out of Canada, out of Winnipeg. I remember like uh, in 2013, Dave Grohl, like, you know, Foo Fighter, Dave Grohl, Nirvana, yeah. Dave Grohl. Um, he gave a keynote speech at South by Southwest. And in there, he sort of said, KTEL, he thanked KTEL for exposing him to music early in his life. You know, it was a, a record, a 1975 record called Blockbuster that really, you know, changed his life forever. So like if KTEL can have that impact on a Dave Grohl, you know, just think of the impact that it had on, you know, artists around the world. 
Yeah. I mean, even me as a kid, you know, I would go, you would always buy it for one or two songs that you really liked. You know, there was maybe, yeah. a, you know, I don't know, a Michael Jackson song or something that you really wanted. And then you'd play the whole thing and hear bands that you didn't really know that well. So it allowed you to discover a lot of stuff. And one of the things that was so great about them is there was a really eclectic mix. I mean, there were the, you know, the theme albums that were one genre, but a lot of them were just eclectic. And yes. uh, how, how did that go? How did they go about compiling those albums, getting the rights, choosing the songs? You know what, that was really before my time. So I'm not 100% sure sort of how all that came to be. But I do know that, you know, artists wanted to be on KTL Records. I remember running into Randy Bachman at one point, who's another Canadian legend from the Guess Who and Bachman Turner Overdrive. And, you know, I was just enamored to meet him. And I introduced myself and he said, you know, when we made, when the Guess Who made it onto a KTL record, that's when we knew we really made it as a band. Did you own KTL? Did you have KTL records? I mean, that would be the thing. You'd always think, you know, if you're in the family, you must get all of them for free. But I wonder. <laughs> you know, yeah, we did. I remember listening to an Elvis eight track, you know, over and over again in my mother's car. And of course, you know, we had the mini pops when I was a kid, which was such a big deal for me, because when they came over from London in the 80s, like to me, that was the biggest deal in the world. Yeah, I remember the eight track stackers too. You could buy a KTL had an eight track stacker for the car if I'm not if I'm not mistaken. I think they did. Yeah, they had um, an eight track stacker. They had like the record selector, like and which was the epitome of a KTL product because it combined both music and um, consumer products in one. Do you still get a lot of requests for the products? And and do you still, I mean, I imagine a lot of them have become kind of classics, right? I mean, there was a time where you could get a lot of them uh, relatively inexpensively at garage sales and so on, but I don't see a lot of them anymore. It feels like they've, they're, they're now, they've earned their spot in kind of the, the lexicon of the era and they're guarded. Yeah, no, unfortunately we don't have those items anymore, but I do get, we do get requests. I'd say like we get a couple requests a week, people looking for something or people looking for replacement parts, which, right. you know, I am like, wow, you've still been using this for like 25. That means they've been using their products for like 25 years and they're just now looking for a replacement part. Yeah. I mean, they were, they were. Your dad, I, I believe, took pride in the fact that they were well-made. I mean, they were solid by even by today's standards, right? Yes. No, absolutely. Like, that was the biggest thing. Like, he always wanted to create value. You know, he'd find these products, like products that you didn't even know you wanted. Like, that's what I always say. Like, people didn't even know they needed it until they marketed it. Which is what marketing is all about, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> I, I, the fascinating story about this was the infomercials, because that was such a big deal. That was such a, a cornerstone, not only to the success, but also to the kind of lasting influence of, of your father and the company and so on. Uh, you used to write those around the kitchen table, apparently. Yeah, we did. Like like I mentioned, I, I, I just thought it was normal that we would sit around the kitchen table. And my father would be writing his scripts. He'd be like counting the words because you could only have a certain amount of words per line because he just sort of had a formula that he would use. And that's what we would do. And then, and then, if uh, if you wanted to look back at that era, you can see yourself sort of in childhood in some of those commercials, right? Oh my God, I know it's true. I think we were. I was in the Bedazzler commercial. I remember that as a child. The mini pops are back. Yes, that special mini pop magic is back in a brand new album. We're the mini pops. Mini pops volume two features all new material, hot off the charts. It's fun and it's fantastic. We're the Mini Pops, only from KTEL, and it's in stores now. 
Sabatha Kivas is with us uh, this hour from Toronto. She, of course, is with KTEL. Uh, it's still a family-owned business. It was founded by her father, Philip, uh, back in the 60s. And we're talking about the history of the company, which has such an incredible place in the sort of the Canadian memory and beyond, too. But certainly in Canada, it takes up such a, a place for for generations that grew up with it, like myself. The infomercials have had a real lasting impact, right? I mean, I still, if you go onto YouTube, you know, bless YouTube, you can see all of them. Do you ever look back at them and sort of think, wow, you know, a lot of what my dad was doing back then are still kind of the basis of how those commercials work? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, you know, it's quite remarkable to think about it. Yeah, because it was it was a unique style. It was like an in-your-face style commercial that he really created. And you know, you still see that today. I feel like it had such a big impactful impact, not only on like the business world, but in pop culture as well. You know, they still mock it like I mean, they used to mock those infomercials on Saturday Night Live and SCTV. And then even from time to time, we get like requests even today, like people wanting to recreate a KTEL movie or KTEL commercial for a movie or something along those lines that are happening. Like we sometimes even license those commercials for film. So it's really interesting to see what a huge impact, you know, it had on pop culture, the music industry, as well as in advertising in general. I imagine like every kid growing up at some point, you must've thought, I don't want anything to do with KTEL. Like this is that, you know, I'm, I've grew up in it or, you know, I'll do my own thing or I'll go do something else, you know, because I think that's sort of, that kind of happens to all kids. I don't know if it happened to you, but did you ever sort of think, ah, I don't really want, <laughs> I'll leave that alone. Well, it's funny. It's true. I was working, um, you know, I did go, did have another career. Um, I was working as a consultant and then I was, you know, my father asked me just to come back for a year just to help him with a certain project because I was leaving that job anyways. And I did, you know, sure enough, 18 years later, I'm still here. There you are. It is the fact you were going to go back eventually. Tell me about the mini pops because you mentioned that earlier. That was really of your time when you were growing up. And it was such a huge, I mean, I remember Hooked on Classics just being absolutely everywhere. Oh, yeah. And then the mini pops was sort of the second coming of that, where all of a sudden KTEL records weren't just compilations. Um, they were their own product and they were absolutely ubiquitous. You couldn't, you couldn't avoid the mini pops back then. How no, that, I mean, how, I, yeah. I love the mini pops as a kid. Like I have such fond memories of doing arabands and doing dance routines with my friends to the mini pops. And the mini pops really were like, sort of like the perfect KTEL item because it was sort of a novelty product idea and it was music and it was combined into one. And uh, yeah, like back in the eighties, the mini pops were just massive. They had, in 1983, it was the third highest selling album in Canada. And they actually did uh, a tour of Canada, which I absolutely remember. Uh, they had the number one single in France, knocking off Ebony and Ivory. So the mini pops really were this massive phenomena back in the 80s. Yeah. And 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 in many ways, did a lot of good for KTEL, right? I mean, it was, it, was, it was the ability to continue to innovate that was so remarkable, I think, and instead of just sort of resting on your laurels and selling the same products. It was always sort of moving forward. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, no, the mini pops were great back then, and, like, we love the mini pops again even today. Yes. Yeah, so, so you brought them back. I mean, I know this goes back a while to the early 2000s when they made a return. The kids, the mini pop kids, right? Which was, yeah. I remember that. And now they're back again. So you're, they're touring now. They're still, it's still happening. Yeah, no, it's great. So like back in 2004, we brought the mini pop kids back. And at the time we were just really focusing on the music. And then, you know, as it grew and as it grew, 
you know, we started working in the touring industry and it's just so wonderful to be able to give other kids that same experience that I had when I was a kid, you know, like, you know, my children included, um, the experiences are really priceless. And, you know, my kids are, you know, it's really, really wonderful to see the kids watching the videos on my kids watching the videos on YouTube or listening to music or Spotify, or just going to one of our live concerts. Thank God we're back and, you know, we can start touring again and we're going all across the country this year. What do kids make of it now, these kids of the TikTok generation? And, you know, I think back in the day, it was, you know, you if you had your air band, if you were if you were a little aspiring mini pop star, you had to do it, you know, basically you were by yourself, right? And nowadays you can, you know, they're, they're, you see you see that kind of stuff all over the place. Uh, it must have changed just the whole nature of it. Oh, it absolutely has changed the whole nature of it, for sure, because kids, you know, they're exposed. And I think that's what makes mini pop kids even more relevant today. Cause there's so much content that really is inappropriate for kids and that they shouldn't be listening to or looking at, at this age. So to be able to offer sort of like clean, wholesome music, you know, of today's pop songs that kids really want to listen or watch, you know, it's really important. And I think it, you know, it still has like a really great purpose um, you know, of exposing kids to music in a really health and safe, safe way. Yeah. I, I, what else is, is KTEL up to these days? Because I was reading some interesting stuff about, do you still own the rights to some of the stuff that you that you released in the, in the 70s? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the so how does that work? Yeah. So we have like a really rich and deep catalog of music. We have artists such as like Chubby Checker, who did the twist or little Richard um, or the romantics who sang what I like about you. Um, And so, you know, all that music is still available and people can still enjoy and stream that music today, whether it's on Spotify or Amazon or Apple or YouTube. And that's what you do, right? Is that, is that part of what you're involved in? Yeah. That's so. And then, you know, we also license all this music for film and television and commercials. So, I mean, this year, last year, in the last sort of 12 months, we had a song on Ted Lasso. We had a song in Stranger Things, which was really fun because both those shows were so massive and blown up. So it was really great to be like a small little part of both of those great show success. What do you see for the future now? Because um, I think when we think back, a lot of us have these sort of nostalgic memories of KTEL for what it once was, right? Gadgets and gadgets and compilations. And it's different now. Where would you like to see it go uh, from here? Well, it's wonderful for people to still be able to enjoy the music that's in our back catalog. Like, for example, the song Come and Get Your Love by Redbone, right? Yep. That was in the movie uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, which just gave that song a whole new life. So it's awesome to keep working with these music supervisors, you know, from all over the world to place these classic songs. And then it gives these songs new life and, you know, second chances for a new generation to enjoy them. So yeah. I'd love for that to see continue. And then also with the mini pop kids, which is its, its own sort of separate entity, you know, it's awesome to see, it's awesome just to continue going back to different markets. Like we're coming back to Alberta. Um, we're leaving very shortly to come visit there and just watch, continually watch one generation of kids over another generation, kids of another generation of kids, really just enjoying music and being able to enjoy the experience of enjoying music live and being part of kids' very first concerts ever. Like it's really, I can't tell you how much it warms our heart to see these little kids just, you know, being enamored by our little stars on stage and being part of that first experience for them. 
the uh it's amazing when all the songs you've mentioned i think i have them on ktel records i went through a period <laughs> where i bought a ton of them because you know i bought a lot of them just just to have cuts like uh like uh, come and get your love uh, a quick lightning round because we always do this samantha okay don't feel don't feel any pressure uh, but but your favorite ktel gadget was um i think the bedazzler Really, you were in the commercial too. That was a great one. Yeah. As a kid, like I could actually be dazzled my clothes. Like I probably did. I'd be dazzled socks and whatever it may be. And you were in the commercial. Yes, but that's, yes, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> that's neither. Uh, did you have a favorite KTEL album? Oh my God. Um, my favorite KTEL album. I don't. There's so many of them. Maybe Super Bad or Hooked yeah. on Classics. Super Bad or Hooked on Classics. Those were hooked on classics. That God, that was that was so big. That it was, was so huge. Big. It sold like and, ten million copies. It's remarkable when you think about what it was, right? I mean, it was classical. You could buy classical music anywhere, and here it came. Um, and what, what are the what product do you get asked the most about now as KTEL? I don't know. It's a really great question. I think it's got to be people. The record selector maybe is what we get. I get asked about the most. Yeah, probably. But uh, the other product that I, sh- I should have mentioned before that I loved was uh, the Miracle Brush. Yes. And I think my father sold 29 million pieces of that. Remarkable. Yeah, the, the LP, I guess, I guess vinyl is back, right? So. Oh, yeah. So people who are collecting it would love one of those LPs. Yeah, so like those I know. Well, hey, listen, selectors. we're working on it now. So there you go. Are you? We could yeah. see an LP selector again. Will we see a commercial? No, I don't. We'll see. Maybe. You never know. Never say never. <laughs> Samantha Kivas, thank you so much for your time and for uh, for walking us through the fantastic history of uh, KTEL. Okay. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, it was a pleasure speaking with you. The Reserve Bank has decided uh, to uh, make the, the next $5 banknote feature a design honouring the culture and history of First Australians. Uh, we support this decision from the Reserve Bank. Uh, we were consulted on this decision. Uh, it is a decision for the RBA to take, uh, but the Governor consulted me in reaching this decision. Uh, I think this is the right decision uh, come to for the right reasons. And with that, Australia announced, uh, well, yesterday in Australia, it's Friday there now, but on Thursday, that uh, that was it. They were not going to put uh, King Charles on their $5 bill to replace uh, the Queen, who is there now. Um, it comes after, I gather, a fair amount of debate back and forth. Uh, the decision, as was mentioned by the Treasurer Jim Chalmers just there, was made by the nation's central bank, meaning the image of the late Queen will not be replaced by her son. In fact, it won't be a person at all. As he mentioned, they're opening it up to a design which honours the country's uh, the ind- Indigenous Australians. Opposition leader Peter Dutton was less than impressed. I think it's a, another attack on uh, our, our systems, on our society and our institutions. Uh, there's no question about uh, this, that um, it's directed by the government. Still, the image of the monarch will remain on the country's coins, just not that $5 bill, which was the last note to feature the queen or the monarch and the government. But the government here, though, says that this is the right time to make this call. And so this uh, decision taken independently by the Reserve Bank in consultation with the government is an opportunity to strike a good balance here. Uh, The monarch will still be on the coins, uh, but the $5 note will say more about our history and our heritage and our country. And I see that as a good thing. 
So therein, uh, there is the background. Uh, what has been the overall reaction? What does it say about the future of the king as Australia's head of state? And should Canadians, should we be looking to do the same? I remember a poll not long after the Queen's death that found that just a quarter of Canadians wanted King Charles on our banknotes. Well, joining me now with more on this uh, from Australia, where it's Friday afternoon, and I noticed 28 degrees because it's the dead of summer, not the dead of winter like it is here, is Cindy McCreary. She's a historian and a senior lecturer at the University of Sydney. Thanks so much for your time. Good evening, Ben. Yeah, so, so right in the middle of the summer, this feels a bit like a summer announcement, doesn't it? You forget sometimes that these announcements are coming sort of in the, in, uh, you know, in the middle of the summer there. What was the reaction like today to it? Look, I think what's interesting is that today, Ben, uh, the news cycle seems to have moved on. There's not been a great number of reactions since the ones that you quoted or that we just heard from politicians. In other words, I don't see a large groundswell of opinion by ordinary Australians. Um, it may be that that will come, but I think it, where it has taken people by surprise, it may also be a decision which is perhaps less relevant to some Australians, particularly, if I may say, younger Australians, who, of course, are increasingly going cashless. So the significance of paper or now polymer notes and coins is perhaps less visible and less important for Australians than, than it was, say, 20 years ago. Yeah, you might have to reintroduce a certain generation to exactly what it is you're talking about before you even mention who's on it, right? That's, uh, was there a lot of speculation about this leading up to it, well, uh, you know, once, he, was, once um, he ascended the throne? Well, in fact, in September, the Reserve Bank did signal that it would be reviewing um, the uh, banknotes. And, uh, and, of course, this is something that does happen from time to time. Uh, and they did sort of signal that it might be uh, a decision, it might be made that the new monarch, Charles III, would not be included on the notes. Having said that, I think it's also worth pointing out that this decision um, will be um, a breath of fresh air for our Labour government, who are currently trying to promote what we call the Indigenous voice to Parliament in Australia, and who mm -hmm. are also, of course, committed in the long term to a referendum on Australia becoming a republic. Now, recently, there's been a lot of debate, debate and divisiveness in Australia about the precise nature of the Indigenous voice. So this decision by the RBA, and yes, the RBA Reserve Bank is independent of the government, but nevertheless, their decision would surely... Uh, gladden the hearts of our Labour government, who are in favour of an Indigenous voice to Parliament, are in favour of a republic. Uh, so it's good news for them. I think on the other side of the political spectrum, the leader of the opposition, Peter Dutton, and others like Liberal Senator uh, Dean Smith, are right when they say that this is, is really perhaps a decision that does seem to reflect government policy. So it does seem to be something that supports government policy. And it's also a decision that was not made uh, by, as I understand it, by canvassing public opinion. Now, there's no need technically for that to happen. There's no rule that says that Australians have to be consulted on the design of our banknotes. But it is something that for monarchists will seem to be a little bit of a slippery slope. In other words, that without sort of referenda, the Australian government, or at least the RBA, seems to be moving Australians to a system where even our currency has less direct connection with the monarch. Yeah, I mean, politicians in any country, it was interesting to notice just how often Jim Chalmers mentioned that this was an independent decision, independent of them, at least, that they've been consulted, but they had no real right, weight in this. A, but it's an independent <laughs> yeah. decision that, that, that is absolutely um, one that the Labour government supports. I think if it, was, if it had gone the other way, they might have a, more criticism yeah. of it. As always. I mean, I know that you, you follow the, I mean, the monarchy broadly. I, I mean, clearly in Canada, we've been having similar discussions. It, uh, we, we have not nearly gone down the same path 
towards a republic uh, with you know the referendum back in 1999, as, as you have. Um, but it is an issue that's come up across the Commonwealth, I think, about, you know, this is an opportunity. And maybe I, I think here it's not necessarily, you know, against King Charles. It's sort of just a moment in time. Things have changed over the over the Queen's lifetime. Things change. And this is sort of feels like the moment to, to seize upon that. It feels like that's what's happening with the banknotes where you are. It is. And I think we should also note that it's not the case that Queen Elizabeth herself was always on the $5 Australian note. In fact, in 1992, when I think Elizabeth was brought on to our $5 note, she displaced uh, a 19th century humanitarian campaigner, Caroline Chisholm. And in fact, there were protests at the time that Caroline Chisholm was being displaced in favour of Queen Elizabeth. So we should remember that it's not always been the case that Queen Elizabeth has been on that note. Having said that, it is traditional, if not necessarily uh, necessary, that the monarch has appeared on the Australian banknote. So I think this is really, it is a moment of real change. It will be the first time that there is no Australian monarch on one of our notes. Uh, Yes, the monarch will remain on our coinage, but I think for many Australians, notes uh, still seem to be a little bit more prestigious, perhaps, than, than coinage. Yeah, certainly, certainly the same is true in Canada as well. Now, I mean, Canadians always pay a lot of attention to what monarchs say about, or, you know, as his time as, as the Prince of Wales, about what they say about the other, about the realm, so to speak. And uh, I wouldn't be mistaken in saying that uh, King Charles has always expressed a lot of affection for Australia. So this may seem be seen as a bit of a slight by him. Yes, but I also think that the royal family, including Charles, has always been very understanding of the right of independent nations, whether they're Commonwealth realms or republics, to make their own policy. And of course, since Australia became an independent nation in 1901 with our own constitution, that constitution gave our government, our federal government, the right to legislate in respect of coinage, currency, legal tender. So we are absolutely operating as the system is designed to do. And I think the royal family has been respectful of the decisions made by uh, people in these Commonwealth realms. I, I think what what is interesting, however, is that it was Charles's father, uh, the late Prince Philip, who actually opened the Royal Australian Mint in Canberra on a visit to right. Australia in 1965. So there may also be a bit of a, a personal sense of, of sadness that an institution which his father opened um, you know, is now, although that mint is now producing the coins, but, you know, an association is still called the Royal Australian Mint, but but now we seem to be moving away from that royal part of our, the royal, our history. The royal aspect. It's not going to happen overnight, though, right? I was listening to the press conference and reading the, the news coverage, and I gather that this is going to be a fairly long process before the Queen uh, vanishes from the $5 bill. Absolutely. And indeed, they haven't uh, decided on the new design that will be, as the RBA has said, in consultation with First Australians, with Indigenous people in Australia. And that process is likely to take several years. So no, it's not the end of of, uh, seeing Queen Elizabeth on our $5 note, but I think it is still a a significant decision. Um, And, you know, it does suggest, as you say, Ben, uh, a sort of a change in the atmosphere here in Australia. Australia as well, I think, if I may be so bold, is often seen as the kind of uh, you know, the ringleader of, of the naughty kids in the Commonwealth. And I think it when Australians yeah. do this, other countries watch this, not to say they would necessarily follow a bad example, but I think it will get attention, not just in Canada, but perhaps in New Zealand and the other remaining Commonwealth realms. Cindy, when we look at the, the Republican movement generally, I know that there was a, obviously a referendum back in 1999. I know there's been talk of maybe another one, but there is, is there's a constitutional referendum coming up that has nothing to do with uh, within the, with re- becoming a republic, is that right? 
That's right, Ben. So uh, when the Labour government headed by Prime Minister Anthony Albanese uh, came to power last year in the federal election, uh, one of the things they made clear was that they would prioritise the introduction of a referendum to change our constitution to include what's known here as uh, an Indigenous voice to Parliament, and that that would be the priority of the Albanese government's first three-year term. And since that time, uh, the government has moved forward with that. There have been working groups, and indeed, I think they're going to finalise the wording uh, of the constitutional uh, amendment that they are proposing, and then that would be put to a referendum um, later this year. Uh, And at the same time, the government made clear that because they are prioritizing the Indigenous Voice to Parliament referendum, uh, that they would delay any referendum on Australia becoming a republic until a second three-year term were the government to be re-elected at the next federal election. So there's no immediate uh, referendum coming up on Australia becoming a republic. Having said that, Uh, The two issues are seen to be linked by some, and certainly there's been a lot of debate about Australia becoming a republic, particularly since the passing in September of of Queen Elizabeth II. Um, So there's a a lot of debate and discussion, and I think that the decision about the banknotes, although it was, as Jim Chalmers, our treasurer, said uh, correctly, it was an independent decision taken by our reserve bank, who's in charge of of the banknotes in Australia, uh, it will be seen by many to be playing into the federal government's larger agenda of promoting the Indigenous voice to Parliament and eventually uh, holding a referendum on Australia becoming a republic. Yeah, it certainly does, uh, to use a word that I don't like so much, it usually does, it certainly does align with government priorities, so to speak. That sounds like something out of a press press release. Yeah. That's right. And I think that does explain the the real um, anger of the leader of the opposition, Peter Dutton, uh, and of other uh, monarchists and other conservative thinkers in Australia who really, I think, were quite blindsided by that and really felt that it was, uh, you know, it didn't look at all as an independent decision. How big a deal is the idea of uh, of doing away with the monarchy these days? Is it, is it one of those things that is talked about or is it, I mean, in Canada, it's sort of, if you do a poll, people will, you know, people often talk about wanting to move on, but it's not really a big deal. I think it's becoming more of a big deal in Australia. Um, And I think for some people, it is linked to our own colonial past and in part the the treatment and mistreatment, in fact, of course, of Australian Indigenous people and indeed of other non-white people. Um, I think also that the revelations by um, Prince Harry with his memoir, Spare, and the interviews which he gave um, and also the Netflix series with uh, Harry and Meghan also did a lot in Australia to stir up debate about the role of the monarchy here. And I think for many people, there was disquiet as some of Harry's revelations, and that did make some people feel as if perhaps the British monarch was not uh, an appropriate head of state for Australia. But it's complicated because even in 1999 with the referendum, that was defeated not so much because Australians were really voting to continue being a monarchy, Really, the analysis shows that they were voting against a particular model of choosing a new head of state in a republic. And I think that needs to be remembered as well. It's not just enough about whether Australia wants to become a republic or remain a constitutional monarchy. It's about what kind of republic would we be? Would we have a US-style republic or or something else? Uh, So these are all very complicated issues, but they are issues that I think are becoming more to the forefront uh, in the Australian press and in sort of national debate. Yeah, I certainly, therein lies the big question, right? If not uh, 
the, the king is your head of state, then who, right? That's, uh, that's mm-hmm. that, I, I think that's always been a thorny question here as well. Well, uh, Cindy McCready, thank you for your other. Thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. 